Hey there, and welcome to Health Yeah with Gene O'Connor, the president of the board of directors for the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. You can find more information about NACDD at chronicdisease.org. As always, I'm Joseph Rhodes, your friendly podcast producer. John Auerbach is our guest today, and he's the president and CEO for the Trust for America's Health. And this conversation is really interesting. So I'm going to let Gene get right to it. Welcome, John, to the NACDD podcast series on population health improvement. We're excited to have you join us. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to join you. Thanks for being with us. Um, As I think you know, I'm the current president of NACDD um, and a public health practitioner. And for our audience, um, would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, I'd be happy to do that. My current job is as the president and CEO of Trust for America's Health. That's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based in Washington, D.C. that is part think tank, part advocacy group, part research organization focused on promoting public health and prevention. That's fantastic. Now, before you worked for Trust for America's Health or TIFA, you had a couple couple of other roles in public health, didn't you? I did. Um, I worked for uh, more than 25 years in governmental public health. Uh, I started out uh, many years ago as the chief of staff of the Massachusetts Department of Public Health and later became the director of the AIDS Bureau uh, during the period when the AIDS epidemic was uh, first emerging. And then I spent 10 years as the commissioner of health for the city of Boston. I then returned back to the state health department and became the commissioner of public health in Massachusetts for several years. And After that, I went to the Centers for Disease Control, and I worked at the Centers for Disease Control for a number of years as the director of the policy office and did work as well with local, state, tribal, and territorial agencies. That's amazing. So you've had this really long career in public health. Well, that's that's exciting. So I think you're going to have a lot to share with us today about um, your thoughts around population health. So at at TIFA, can can you tell us more a little bit about what you currently do and some of the things that TIFA is working on? Um, Certainly. I'll also tell you a little bit more about the organization itself. We've been around for 16 years. We're funded entirely by foundations like the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Kellogg Foundation. And we are uh, not a membership organization. So we, we were created to be an independent voice for public health and prevention policy. The work that we do is divided roughly into three different areas. One of those areas is government relations. So we have a team of people who every day are on Capitol Hill or working with members of the federal agencies in Washington. And then we have another team that is a policy team that looks particularly at emerging policy issues, some of the critical issues that are facing the public health sector, 
And it deepens the discussion on those, brings people together to think through solutions to problems that arise, releases policy papers uh, and the like. And then we have a third section that's our public affairs or communications unit. And that works on producing reports and briefings and briefs throughout the year on uh, topics of interest to people in public health that range from obesity to emergency preparedness to the opioid epidemic. Yeah, certainly. I, I have to imagine many of our listeners are familiar with some of those reports. For example, the there is a report I think that you put out around obesity that may have a title like F is in fat. Do I have that right? You do, although we changed that title a few years ago to the state of obesity because we got feedback that the F is for fat might not be the ideal title. But the, the basic report is still coming out and it's been, we've been doing those reports for almost a decade. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. I mean, I think um, there's so, many impo- so much important work that goes on um, that your organization does at a national level. Can you explain a little bit more? You talked about sort of work on the Hill and communications work and so forth. Can you talk a little bit more about how through those three things that you described, Trust for America's Health kind of relates to population health. I mean, obviously, you're putting out these reports and working with policymakers. How do you see that as improving population health across the country or on specific issues? Well, why don't I think of the work that we've done this year and give you examples of how we have tried to ensure that our work is closely focused on the critical population health issues facing the country. Uh, With our government relations people, it wouldn't surprise you that we have spent a good deal of time this year on the debates that have taken place about the uh, Affordable Care Act. Our particular interest was on the prevention and public health fund that was created as part of the act um, and as your listeners may know, that allocated billions of dollars to pay for innovative population health and prevention activities, most of them at the state and the local level. The fund over the years has been used for other purposes. It hasn't always been able to fulfill that idealistic goal, but it now represents 12% of CDC's budget. And so we were a consistent voice on Capitol Hill defending those funds, talking about how those funds were being used uh, to make a difference in people's lives at the state and local level, and encouraging um, solutions during the contentious debate that would guarantee that those important activities weren't defunded. So far, we have lost $100 million out of the fund in in recent votes, but most of the fund dollars are still in place. So that's one example on uh, government relations. With regard to the communications and public affairs section, we looked around this year at where we could focus our most useful attention and realize that that might be gaining a deeper understanding of the population health approach to grappling with the opioid epidemic. And so our recent report, Pain in the Nation, focused on opioids drug misuse, alcohol misuse, and suicide. And 
it was different than many of the other activities that are taking place to combat the opioid epidemic because we paid attention to moving upstream and thinking about the role of public health in creating conditions in people's lives so that they were less likely to use substances or alcohol inappropriately and less likely to consider suicide. And, and those were really, again, the, the, the sweet spot for public health and population health. They weren't about uh, simply the important work of linking people who are already addicted to treatment. That, that's very important. But the population health approach is much more upstream and thinking about how we keep people healthy and resilient so that they're less likely to become addicted. So I, maybe I'll stop there just saying that those are, those are two two projects we worked on this year that took a lot of our time and attention. Well, those are really, um, really, really interesting. I think every state across the country um, on some level is struggling with opioid or, you know, alcohol or other drug kinds of issues in their overall population. And it's something that in public health, you know, we tend to work on periodically, but it doesn't seem like we always work on them as consistently so that's interesting to hear about what you have going on. Towards your point, I, I think that what people really like in Washington, but this is true in state houses as well, is they, they want a, a simple solution. That They want, like, what's the thing we can do that solves this problem? And, you know, there are, there are, the nature of this particular problem with opioids is there's not a single thing. There are, the only way we're really going to make a difference is if we do multiple things and, um, and think comprehensively about how to do those. And people in public health are very good at drawing people around a table to analyze how to solve complex problems where there isn't a simple solution. Well, and that's really true, right? In obesity, too, and in, in so many things we work on in public health, there's sort of the need for that multi-sector collective impact kind of approach, right? Absolutely. You're so right. You're so right. Obesity is just a an excellent example where the, the same the same rules apply. John, tell tell me a little bit about it. You know, you you do you have this really rich set of experiences working in public health, and you know, you've just described a couple of things that you know Trust for America's Health is doing right now. Are there are there lessons you've learned maybe about those collective impact approaches or sort of multi sector approaches and past roles you've held as well? I mean policy director at CDC. Wow, that seems like it must have been quite an interesting experience. And, and same thing to be a state health official. You must have had to use those approaches quite a bit in your work. Yes, I, I have had a number of experiences. And, and what I, one of the things that I've learned is that there's a big gap between wanting to work with multiple sectors and have an impact on how those sectors uh, have policies and approaches at, on the one hand, and on the other hand, having the skill and the resources to actually do the work. Uh, I, I'd say most public health people recognize the importance of working with other sectors, and at the same time, most don't have funded positions or trained members of the workforce who are equipped to make a difference in terms of those that kind of work. And I, I think that that's worth teasing out because I think we, we, we definitely want to understand why those sectors matter, but we, we can't be unrealistic about how much can be done in those sectors without resources. And, and in fact, let me give you an example because it really relates to chronic disease directors' activities. 
when I was the Massachusetts Health Commissioner, there was a, a bill that passed in uh, our state legislature that required that there be a health component to major transportation projects in the state. So we view that as a real opportunity to have an influence on on the transportation sector. And we sent one of our smartest people in chronic disease to take on that assignment, to start going to the meetings with the transportation officials. And, and I think what she realized early on was the transportation officials really didn't want public health to be advising them. They looked at public health as the people who will make the project delayed or cost more. And you know, she went to lots of meetings where she had to understand their concerns and learn about their priorities and their pressures and their budgets and the opportunities that existed. And it, it was probably at least a year of going to those kinds of meetings and feeling pretty frustrated that you know, she wasn't having an impact before she got to the point that she could see where she could have an influence by having developed those relationships and understanding where the moments would exist for the insertion of a key public health policy in a way that could be acceptable. But it took a year. It took a year of a really talented person before it became clear how to do that work. And that's a big investment. We were a big department and we didn't have enough people like her that we could invest a person in four or five different sectors. So just a, a caution that we, we, we need to do that work, but we need to make sure we have the resources and the trained personnel to be able to carry it out. Yeah, I think that's something that our members obviously will really understand because, you know, so many of us who have worked in, you know, a program or in chronic disease prevention, you have these big objectives and yet not a lot of resources and often not enough time um, to have the kinds of impacts. I mean, we think about chronic disease, six or seven out of 10 premature deaths, right, are attributable to chronic diseases. It's, the problem is massive and the solutions are, you know, need to involve so many other sectors. It can be hard to know where to begin and then certainly hard to have, find enough um, support to engage in the kinds of long-term strategies that you're describing. So, I mean, hearing that and sort of knowing that these are truths in our work, I mean, what advice do you have do you, for, for people out there working in state and local health departments who are really trying to improve population health at a local level? Is there anything you'd suggest to them that they be sure to do, recognizing, of course, that they do work in these resource-constrained environments? Well, first of all, I think public health folks are amazing and, uh, and always exceed expectations and then overcome the obstacles of limited resources. Um, and and I, I really didn't mean it wasn't possible. I just meant it was really a challenge. Some things I think I would say relate to the work that I've been involved in in the last few years on reconceptualizing what public health of the future needs to look like, public health 3.0 sometimes referred to. And the first thing I would say, it's really good to make sure you have time some point during the year to just look at the data and the demographics of your community and feel comfortable with understanding who your population is, what their main health issues are, and uh, have some sense of the, the, the specific impact 
those health issues are having in your community among different subpopulations. Now, that may sound like that's just what public health does all the time, but my own experience as a public health guy is we often would do what we were funded to do. So if we had a grant to work on infant mortality, we worked on infant mortality. And if no one gave out money for working with uh, people who are over 65, we didn't do much work with people who are over 65. So in other words, our, our attention focused on what we were funded to do. For public health of the future, I think we need to step back and look at where those gaps are. What should we focus on? What populations are in need? What subpopulations in particular? Where is there an opportunity to make a difference? And does that align with what we're doing and what we're funded to do? And, and then where it doesn't align, spend some time thinking about how to, how to identify the resources, draw the attention of policymakers to the gaps, because we, we have to be future-oriented and, and not simply focused on the work that we've done historically. So you, that, you're really talking about the, the public health 3.0, public health as the health strategist, right, for a state or for their local community. I mean, that, I think that's a really exciting idea to many, you know, young people who are in the field of public health or entering the field of public health and so much excitement about wanting to work with health systems, too, to, to do that work. Any advice for, for folks who may be interested in the sort of population health improvement approaches by working with the health care system now with community benefit dollars and, and so many health systems? thinking about how they can improve outcomes, it seems like there are a lot of opportunities. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I think there are. I think you're, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Over the last several years, we've definitely seen a trend of health departments doing fewer direct services, fewer clinics, fewer immunizations, and instead having the traditional clients or patients get those services from primary care sites or other clinical providers, and working together with those clinical providers to make sure that the services are being provided and the most at-risk populations are being reached, that's, a, that's an important area to work on with those partners. And it may also be that as resources get freed up, as we, we don't have to run as many of those clinics, for example, that some of those folks can take on new and different assignments uh, to complement the work that the clinical sector does. Maybe that involves home visits or it involves um, thinking more about community policy um, or regulations that might make a difference. But being creative in terms of our role and not resisting some of those changes, like moving away from the direct services to a more upstream approach is a strategy, I think, that the current times call for. That's great. I mean, so that sounds like that's one um, maybe area of trend or opportunity you see in population health improvement. Are there others you can think of, opportunities that, um, along with that sort of public health 3.0 or public health as the health strategist, and then this work with clinical systems, what other, what other opportunities do you see in population health improvement? I mean, you're in a great spot to kind of see things from 30,000 feet um, in your role in, with Trust for America's Health. Well, I, you know, I'll give you an example of one 
project that we've arrived at as we've thought this through. I I went around to lots of meetings in states and locals over the last several years where I would uh, present some thoughts about Public Health 3.0 and then get feedback from folks. And and one of the things that I would would do would uh, highlight the fact that the demographics in all of our communities are changing. And among the changes that are taking place is folks are the, the percentage of the population over 65 is growing quite significantly. And that's true almost every community, but in some communities very dramatically. Um, and I would ask people in those settings, how many of you are doing those dedicated projects that focus on things like sensory loss or dementia or social isolation? And virtually no one was. And and yet we would, when I would talk to folks during the break in the conference and ask them what was going on in their own lives, they all would say, oh, you know, my mother is, has to move out of her house because she can't live independently. I spent all of my time dealing with my parents. You know, people would tell these sort of horror stories that many of us have had because people who are older aren't well served to live healthy and independent lives. So, so what we've decided to do is, is to sort of say, why don't, we, why don't we begin an initiative that every public health department should pay particular attention to that segment of the population that they're in and think about what they could do using traditional public health skills and approaches to make a difference. We've begun a couple of pilot projects with that in mind, and we're finding a lot of excitement and interest as in an area that is neglected now but could easily become uh, a core part of our work and, and certainly a core part of the work that occurs around chronic disease. Yeah, that's so, that seems so true. I mean, um, having worked in a chronic disease program, there, are, there really is very um, – little that we have had the opportunity to work on with older adults over the last couple of years, but at the same time, the population's aging, as you describe. Our population in this country is also becoming much more diverse. Do you have any thoughts about that, the a key strategy or um, issue for population health improvement? Are you referring mainly to race and ethnicity and that, that kind of diversity? To me, diversity is right everything. It's income, yeah. it's race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and, and, and culture, country of origin, all of those things, I think, contribute to the diversity in this country. And we just know that it's becoming increasingly diverse, right? It sure is. I think we in public health are challenged to understand the, the populations that uh, exist within the country as a whole, but particularly within our own jurisdictions. And, you know, I think we do an uneven job of that. And partly there, too, is it's partly we don't get specialized resources that let us uh, do as deep a dive as we might might want to. But it's certainly true that if we do a risk analysis based upon data, we, we often find that there are many different subpopulations who are at elevated risk based upon uh, conditions in their lives that that may have to do with whether or not what their income is, whether they're discriminated against, uh, whether they live in a uh, urban or a rural community, whether they've been a veteran or not. And I think it's a challenge to us to do that kind of analysis going beyond the 
the limited number of categories that we've traditionally examined. You know, the, the, the age-related ones or some race, certain race categories or others, uh, gender. But I think we, we really need to do a deeper dive and look at those subpopulations in the way that uh, many of them are at elevated risk. Yeah, I think, you know, that the sort of need to promote health equity, but then at the same time not having the data sometimes that we need to really be able to do that, I know, um, can be a challenge in, in programs. Certainly, though, at the same time, we can't get at these very problems, diabetes, hypertension, HIV, lack of immunizations, and so forth, if we don't, you know, really think hard about who it is we're trying to reach and why to improve the overall outcomes in a community. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. So, you know, John, one thing I realized I never did ask you at the beginning of this sort of uh, discussion is, do you have a definition for, for population health that, you know, sometimes people think it's synonymous with public health and sometimes people don't. Does, does it hold any particular meaning for you? My uh, experience with the term is that uh, it's tricky because, you know, you can be in a room with a handful of people and you use the word population health and everybody is thinking of something different. The, the, if there's a clinician in the room, they may be thinking about the patients in their practice or an insurer is thinking about who's covered in their insurance program. But the public health people generally think about the entire population everyone in the population, whether that's the state level or the local level. My inclination as a public health guy is to pay the most attention to that total population approach. And at the same time, to respect that the population health approaches in clinical practices and by insurers are important and we should be understanding those and and thinking about how we can work with them with with efforts like 618 and, and others have done at CDC and with other organizations. But that said, my, my leanings are to think total population. Great, great. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast series is that people do have so many different definitions and ways of thinking about um, what population health is or how they can improve population health. So thanks again so much for um, sharing that definition. I, I tend to think the same way sort of holistically about, about the population overall. So just, John, just a couple of last questions. I mean, so we've talked a lot about some examples and, and opportunities and trends um, in population health improvement from your perspective. And but what about training? I mean, again, you have sort of very rich background and history um, working in public health, if you were going to give advice to people who are newer to the field or maybe who are entering the field in its career, if they wanted to advance their skills or knowledge around some of the things you've discussed today, is there anything in particular you'd recommend to them that they do study or learn about or go to? I think that there, there's nothing like what you might call field experience, in a, nothing like actually just doing the work and getting out there and and having interactions with the populations that you're serving. I think I've learned the most when I had direct contact with the clients and the populations we were working with, even if that meant going to an angry meeting at night. You know, there, there, there were certainly better ones than that, but, but sometimes that's the, that's the opportunity you have. I, but I, I think being, being very close to the population that's 
that you are most interested in is matters a lot. It reminds you of why it's why the work uh, matters and the impact that it can have and and uh, helps to want to stay mission focused. That said, I I think there is real value in also paying attention to uh, reading the studies that are that shed light on programs that are uh, being shown to make a difference now and sometimes even reading some history about uh, what's made a difference in the past in public health, uh, whether that's going back to John Snow or the point in the early 1900s where people were working on community sanitation. I have found when I was on the front lines, I never had time to read or take a course. And, and then later when I did, I thought, oh my God, I wish I'd known this. It would have made a difference if I had a, a clearer understanding of, of what works from a a research perspective and a historical perspective. So, so I, I guess I would say that the thinking creatively about lots of different opportunities and balancing the direct experience with deepening one's uh, knowledge base from history and research is, is a healthy balance. Fantastic. Yeah, I think you described something here that is really an art form, right? That over you need both a sort of face-to-face real-world learning in the community from working directly with the population we're serving, but then at the same time, we need the, we need the book learning. We need the things that um, we read in journals and those close contacts with our academic colleagues. That's really great advice for somebody in the field. Given all the things you've shared today, I mean, you've offered a lot of examples of your work from Trust for America's Health and a few from your career experiences. Is there anything else that you would want to tell our listeners about working on the field of population health improvement or public health improvement, either about things they could do or should do or things you see coming up on the horizon, just anything at all that I haven't asked you about yet that you'd like to share? I think I've grown to appreciate more in the last several years the importance of being able to demonstrate concretely that the work we're doing is making a difference. By that, I don't necessarily mean a, a formal evaluation, but, but I, I mean looking for ways either through people's stories, that can be you know anecdotal stories that, that illustrate we're making a difference, or where we can show our, our actions are leading to people engaging in healthier behaviors or, or even uh, having healthier outcomes. Understanding that uh, and trying to articulate it to policymakers, both appealing to their hearts through those human stories and their minds through as evidence that something works, is crucial for our surviving what are likely to be some tough years in terms of defending our budgets and making the case that it's a good investment when, when public health is funded. I think we can't rest on our laurels. We really have to, or, or assume people know, we have to pay a lot of attention to making the case by uh, showing we're making a difference and, and not just the next generation, but in the time period that we're in now and the time period that policymakers focus on. Well, John, thanks again so much for agreeing to participate in this interview. And I, I think I speak for all of our listeners and members of the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors when I 
say, you know, we're, we're all really counting on organizations like the Trust for America's Health to continue to be that voice for public health on Capitol Hill and, and out with policymakers. We, we sincerely appreciate your time. And, um, John, is there a place where our members who might be interested in learning more about your organization can go look online? Sure. You can always Google Trust for America's Health, but our website is www and then the initials tfah.org. John Auerbach from the Trust for America's Health, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. For more information on Trust for America's Health and John Auerbach, you can go to tfah.org, and that stands for Trust for America's Health. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Health Yeah! I hope you found it informative and entertaining like I did. On behalf of NACDD and Gene O'Connor, thank you very much for listening.